You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. On today's episode, we talk with Dr. Hilary McBride about embodiment, Hillary's imagery of a stress staircase and how we can learn from our pain as we feel it, all as it relates to her book, The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living. But first, Holly, happy 2022. Woohoo! Happy 2022 to you as well, my friend. Yeah, how are I was gonna you? say. Well, I was gonna say, how are you this week? But I feel like I should say, how are you this month or whatever? Because for it's this been, year, it's been a bit. yeah, this yeah. year. So, uh, how's everything been going since we last talked in December sometime? Oh my goodness! Yeah, it, so that feels like six months ago. Even though I know it was just <laughs> last month. Um, yeah. No, but but we we're we're doing okay. We are. Uh, making it and we're wobbling back into this new season. And yeah, I mean, things are, things are good. I would say we had a really good holiday and it was restful. Like Corey and the kids and I, we really did unplug and rest and um, play lots of board games together and do some fun stuff like that. But but that was really good. But yeah, now I, it feels like we're jumping back into everything and it's like, oh my gosh, there's so much going mm-hmm. on right now. So yeah, but yeah. that's that's our little corner. What about y'all? How was your break and, and how have things been going for the wars? It was okay. Yeah, there was, uh, you know, holiday stuff and all of <laughs> that. Uh, I know uh, you're laughing because you and I talked about this a little bit. Um, there was a yeah. variety of sickness. It wasn't COVID that we know of, but there was like... Um, Mm -hmm. I apologize in advance to anyone that's listening that's maybe squeamish, but there was like a weird amount of vomit happening. I don't, I'm the only one in our house that didn't throw (laughs) up at some point. So who knows? Um, just weird little 24 hour things and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, the highlight was, uh, probably everyone sitting down for a nice Christmas breakfast, uh, and Gray immediately throwing up. It was just so fun. Um, Gray. Yeah. He, uh, I mean. You know, just a quick twelve-hour thing for him, and he was yeah. back to uh, everywhere. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, in the best way. So, yeah, no, we're all doing well. We're all healthy. I don't know. It was just uh, the weirdest time, and so it was. Uh, it was an interesting break for sure. Uh, yes, but yes, we're also moving back into things and kind of getting our feet back under us and stuff like that as much as uh, is possible in these days. And excited to be back here for season six, part two, back talking with you. It does feel like it's been forever. I was so excited to, to hop yeah. on and say, hey, Holly, how are you? I know, me too. Yeah, for um, for our listeners, like right before we started, we hit record, it was so good, like just being able to like catch up and talk and just hear how things have been. And, you know, um, it is really good to be back on the show. And I am just elated over the lineup of guests that we have this spring. And, yeah, you know, from today's episode to, you know, what we have coming up in the weeks ahead, it's really good. And I'm excited to get to listen back through each of these. So it's just good to kind of get back into the CXMH rhythm. So. Yeah. 
Well, any any other any updates or anything you want to share before kind of shifting in? Um, I think you have an update in terms of the book that people have pre-ordered and, and things like that, just in case people are listening and they haven't seen that from you online. Yeah. Oh, thank you for saying something because I I don't know that I would have. So I really appreciate you saying something. Yeah. So my book, uh, The Soul of the Helper, that was supposed to be coming out in um, about a week and a half from the point that we're recording this, mm-hmm. um, actually is being pushed back about a month. And that's heavily, I mean, that's just due to COVID and the unfortunate spread of COVID through the the printing company members staff. And we mm-hmm. know that there are some issues around the supply chain. And it's just, you know, I think I think I, I'm surprised. There are so many layers that I keep being surprised by the ways that COVID is impacting us, but this is mm. one of them. So yeah. so unfortunately well, and fortunately, because we have a little bit more time for some pre-orders, so that's yeah. good. Um, but it'll just take a little bit longer uh, for it to get in folks' hands, which is a bummer. But yeah. I've been so thankful for you know, our listeners and those who have been following along and just their support through this, knowing that this is one of those things that's just out of our control. And we just hope and um, pray that the staff are okay and safe and that their loved ones are healthy and, you know, and, and it'll yeah. come when it's meant to. So yeah. it's okay. So you can check Amazon for the exact specifics while you are pre-ordering uh, or if you order from whichever other bookstore, your local bookstore, things like that. Um, and in the meantime, you can go back and listen to episode 143 in which we talk with Dr. Holly Oxhandler about the book and all the things that are in it. All right. So my segue question for us, um, you kind of already mentioned who we're going to be talking in this episode, but I wondered if, you know, because of the fact that we have been carrying so much within, you know, our minds and our hearts and our spirits and our bodies, like through, especially the last couple of years, I'm wondering in what ways have you begun to learn to listen to, in particular, the wisdom of your body through all it is that we've been carrying? Hmm. So in this book, right, Hillary describes uh, the this stress staircase imagery that she has. And I even, I think I, I, point out mm-hmm. that it, yeah. uh, there's a lot of kind of polyvagal theory happening kind of within that. And that's something that I, uh, the the polyvagal ladder and things like that, that I've been learning about in the past handful of years that I really like. Um, and listeners who are like, what are you talking about? You'll, you'll Hillary will describe it, but yeah. essentially the idea of like kind of keeping, keeping an awareness of where I am on that ladder or the staircase, whichever one you want to use or whatever, right? But like the idea that safe and social is kind of one chunk and then the other, like the middle chunk is like uh, fight or flight type stuff, right? And then there's like a shutdown Mm -hmm. kind of type, like, you know, and just the idea that like we're always somewhere on there. And that's obviously a really, really like quick you know, whatever, yeah. send me emails and be like, that was a horrible explanation. No, I, no, no, no. Know. They'll hear um, about it in just a few moments, right? Right. So, it's okay. so uh, yeah. I think that that is helpful for me and has been, I think, just in growing that awareness of like, where am I as opposed to like, well, either I'm normal or I'm like feeling something bad, right? But um, kind of the mm-hmm. idea of like, where am I on that? And then how can I kind of work with that in terms of what things tend to 
grease the pole for me to like slide down or to, to move back up or things. Yeah. You know, I'm uh-huh. trying not to say like make me, you know, shift or whatever, right? Like, um, but things that, that are helpful for me in terms of moving back to safe and social or things that kind of introduce stress and, and activate a kind of an emotional response, things like that. And so I think that's been like, especially over the past, you know, two, three years or, or so mm-hmm. um, has definitely been something that has been a, a useful tool for me and and helpful and a a growing thing, hopefully, you know, that I've been growing that muscle of, of awareness and then kind of my mm-hmm. ability to to navigate that some. Yeah, that's really good. That's good, friend. I'm glad you brought up the staircase piece. I think that that's really important. And I do hope our listeners listen for it when we get to that part in the conversation. Yeah. What about you? I would say that – so what's really interesting is – I, there's a section in um, in the Soul of the Helper where I talk about learning to listen to our bodies and learning. Um, you know, there's been a lot of ways historically where I, you know, I'd have an ache or a pain and I would just get frustrated with it and I would just try to fix it. And rather than shifting to that, you know, softer, more contemplative, um, curious approach of like. Oh, like why why are my shoulders hurting so much or why do I have this headache or you know why do I just feel this tightness in my chest you know mm-hmm. after that meeting or whatever and I think just just getting to the point of being curious about the sensations within our body and getting being able to ask questions and let it be information that we actually learn from instead of it being something that it's like a nuisance that's just getting in the way of what I like air quote like should do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's been really important. So so that's yeah. kind of what I've been learning is just to be curious about those things and not shame them or get frustrated with them, but to yeah. let them be and, and to learn from them. So yeah. Yeah. Curious, not say. judgmental, right? But- that's Longtime listeners, I think we'll probably recognize yeah. that. But curious as opposed to judgmental. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yes, that's right. That's I right. Love that. yeah. Well, we will go ahead and get out of the way. If, you know, once you listen or whatever, right, check out Hillary's book, The Wisdom of Your Body Finding Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living. You can grab it as you're pre ordering Holly's book as well. Um, Aww, and thank in the meantime, you. enjoy our conversation with Dr. Hillary McBride. All right. Enjoy, y'all. Today, we have Dr. Hilary L. McBride joining us. She is a returning guest on CXMH, having appeared back on episode 34. She received her PhD in counseling psychology from the University of British Columbia and is a registered psychologist with a private practice. She's an award-winning researcher and a sought-after speaker who specializes in embodiment. She hosts the Other People's Problems podcast, and her clinical and academic work has been recognized by the American Psychological Association and the Canadian Psychological Association. Dr. McBride is the author of Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image. She's a co-editor of Embodiment and Eating Disorders, and she's the author of the new book that we're going to be discussing today entitled The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living. Hillary, we are so honored and grateful for your presence today. How are you doing? Oh, well, I'm just delighted to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. And 
I am probably more tired today uh, than on the time I was on the podcast previously because I'm a new mom. So <laughs> that is happening in the, I was going to say background, but very much the foreground of my life. Um, yeah. Yes, but I am just so pleased to be here. And I'm noticing that that excitement is cutting through the, the fatigue. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I love the the honesty of that response. I we I know we were talking right beforehand, but I'm for sure more tired than I was last time you were on the show uh, because I have had two kids in that time. Yes. So I definitely I understand um, and really know. and congrats by the way on, on yes, motherhood and all that. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, is there anything that um, that I missed in the intro or the bio there? In addition to the layer of motherhood that is also mm. shifted um, since the last time you were on. Anything else that you want to add? Oh my goodness. What a question. I mean, there are so many different facets to our identity that don't get captured in a brief little uh, a bio like that. But I do find mm. myself thinking about loving learning and how when we present our bios to people and when they read them out, it seems like the summary of what has happened and doesn't ever capture the the spirit that under, undergirds all of them, which is, I can't wait to learn so much more. And I hope mm. that there are, I hope that regardless of my accomplishments or the things that kind of fit neatly beside my name, that the thing that people encounter about me or the thing that keeps moving me in the world is that I'm curious and that I want to keep learning. And so that feels like a really important part of my identity that, um, yeah, that doesn't get captured in, in those, yeah, the, the lists of the kind of the fancy things. Mm -hmm. mm, I love yeah. that. That's so good. Yeah. Well, picking up, I know obviously the last episode that you came on back in 2018, we we talked about your your uh, previous book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, which by the way, I highly recommend that episode and that book. Um, we've actually re-aired that episode at least once oh, because great. we thought mm -hmm. that conversation was so good. But well, would, we'd love to hear a little bit about this book, right? Mm. Uh, what led you to write it kind of between that book and here in the past handful of years? How, how did you end up at this book? Right. Well, in the process of doing the research for the first book, which came out of my of my master's research, I encountered a conversation around embodiment that kind of surprised me in a discourse around body image. I, I didn't really understand how those were similar or different from each other, but it was really in that research that I got to understand that there was more than just viewing our body from the outside positively or negatively. If we think about body image, the construct still keeps us in the territory of image, right? It is still about how we appear to ourselves, to other people, how we evaluate appearance, how we are in relationship to that evaluation, if that's a positive or negative evaluation. And it's great if when we look at ourselves, we say, I like that, right? That probably makes our life easier and it probably allows us to see ourselves more accurately than our critical thoughts on our worst day. But there is something more than being an image. There's being a person, there's being a body. And embodiment is the idea that we are not just a head walking around held or up or supported by a body, but that we actually are an experience of being a body in the world. The body is the locus or the, the seat of the self, not just the mind, as we've so many of us have been told in this kind of disembodied Western civilization. So embodiment 
came about in my research of body image, but it was still really new to me at that time. And I was wrestling with what it meant for myself because I was really still trying to heal from my eating disorder from a, from a kind of disembodied cognitive place, just switch the thoughts out and, you know, think differently about your body and just eat mechanically and do all the things you're supposed to. And I wasn't symptomatic anymore, but I didn't know how to inhabit myself. So I went on this journey of understanding the, how to creep back into my body, how to slowly but surely create a sense of safety with myself, safe, safety enough that I could be in my own skin, that I could be conscious of my experience in the world as a body instead of this fragmented experience of the self. So it was through my own personal, it was really through for the research first and then realizing I need to do some more work that I started really getting interested in embodiment, learning more about it, trying to trying to experience it, trying to dig into what that could look like and how to get towards that. And I found it transformative for me. So I started integrating it into my practice and recommending it with my patients and finding experiences that integrated the body into clinical work and allowed us to remember ourselves as bodies in a way that often was quite disturbing for people at first, especially those of who had bodily trauma. And then also, again, for my patients, deeply transformative and taking them into a new realm that just the cognitive wasn't helping us access. And it was in sharing it with patients and reading more about it and experiencing it myself that I started talking about it more publicly. And I remember as I started talking about it on different podcast episodes and at speaking events and in lectures when I'm teaching my students at in university, that people started to say, but where do I read about this? And some of the only places that I could point people to were primary source academic texts or philosophy texts or, mm-hmm. you know, some of the things mm-hmm. that people just mm-hmm. don't have on their bookshelf. Like people aren't reading Plato. People aren't reading um, Sartre or Merleau-Ponty. Well, maybe some philosophers are, some grad students are, but it's not in the popular discourse. And for us to have these ideas that are foundational move into our homes, move into our kind of our, our senses, we need to have them accessible to us right in front of us. And so that was kind of where the idea for the birth the book was birthed to, to take all of the stuff that is already out there that many people have been speaking about, that many people have lived and known and experienced, but remain somehow separate from our normative cultural understanding of, or I wish I could say the dominant cultural understanding of what what it means to be a body. Oh gosh, I love I love all of that. I mean, the I appreciate you unpacking your journey and how the research had changed you, which I can attest to as having experienced in my own research work and world. Um, there are ways it changes us that we're not prepared for. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times. Um, but hearing you talk about that and the ways that, you know, the way that you said around thinking through how to creep back into your body and what that was like and how to translate that research more broadly in accessible ways, like, I, I mean, <laughs> you're just preaching to my researcher oh, heart in so many right. ways. I love it. I love oh, it. So I love glad. it. Yeah. Well, and so you started talking, you know, you 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 have began to dive into like thinking through like body image versus what it is to be embodied or embodiment. And so I'd love to maybe just expand a little bit more about embodiment and and what that is. And you've started kind of getting at that. 
there's one quote, if, I mean, if you want to read or I'm happy to read, but there's one quote I'd really, really love to focus on and then to invite you to kind of unpack it a bit as you describe what embodiment is a little bit more. Yeah, please read and then then we'll go from there. So you write, um, embodied experience is undeniably the most powerful channel of change. Ultimately, remembering our bodily selves, becoming embodied again is slow work. It is compassionate instead of perfectionistic, communal instead of individualistic, process-oriented instead of achievement-oriented, and mutual instead of hierarchical. We cannot arrive there through the same mechanisms that pulled us out of our bodies in the first place. When we have embodied experiences little by little and go about this in a new way, we are able to craft a new story and enter into a new experience of ourselves. I loved that quote so much. Thank you. Gosh. Yes. So with that, do you mind unpacking a little bit more about embodiment and just expanding on that quote in particular? Yes, Yes, of course. And uh, would you like me to do that in the context of how we do mental health treatment? Because given the scope of the podcast? Yeah, I think that would be, I think that would be great. Yeah. Great. Okay. It is. There's a, a there is something that we assume to be true so much that we don't even really reflect on how much it influences our day to day lives, and that is the assumption that we are first our minds. We have inherited that narrative. That is not something that's actually innately true. When you think about, I mean, Robert, you and I were just talking about babies and having mm-hmm. kids recently, and what my daughter right now she's she's putting everything in her mouth. Right. She is not necessarily having a, a narrative, a tightly wound or kind of perfectly constructed narrative of the world. Everything for her is sensory engagement. Everything is through the body that she is experiencing, the natural world around her. And that's how we start. We actually learn to see ourselves differently from that. And the reason that we see ourselves differently from that is because we have been given an understanding or construction, a social construction of what the self is that comes from a very, very, very long time ago where people had outdated ideas about what it means to be human. And the idea was that being human and being in the body was bad. It was a problem. It was something that needed to be controlled because it was dangerous. It got in the way of spiritual purity. It got in the way Mm -hmm. of our ability to transcend suffering. And it really was implicated in the way that power was constructed socially for people who were more in the body. That was something that was used against them by people who were less in the body and had more social power. Just think about the horrific construction of of the, of, of race really. And what happened when white people were able to say, my body is superior and less unruly than the bodies of people of color, which of course is an outrageous and horrific idea, but it was Mm -hmm. the body that became the place that was seen as the problem. If you were in your body more, if you were connected more to the rhythms of nature, as was the sin that women committed, right? The, The body is tied to what's happening with the earth and has these transformations that happen in a regular cycle that felt unruly or scary or perhaps um, a liability for 
really the gender construction at the time. We have mm-hmm. all of these narratives about how the body is bad and how it became very good and superior to leave the body. So that's kind of our, our little brief history lesson for the, the morning. But what we see is that all of those things also shaped the very people who created the discipline of psychotherapy as a primarily mm. disembodied um, Western philosophical tradition that was highly medicalized, often created by men, men of power, men of status, men who were elite, and white men. So we have this mm-hmm. kind of tradition that is like flowing itself into the cultures and the communities of these people who have privilege and status who are then saying, well, we're going to fix the mind because we understand the mind. And that's really all that there is that's going on here. And of course, there's, you know, some trauma scholars along the way, Janae and Freud's early work who talked about the body. And we've got Jung talking about the collective unconscious and kind of spirituality, but really the dominant way that we approached healing illness in the mental health field was through the mind. It was through cognition. It was through Mm -hmm. analysis. Mm -hmm. It was through free association, which is still really a kind of disembodied, um, solitary mind-based process. Mm. And then we get movements later in the field like you know, CBT, and then we get narrative therapy. And all of these things are further refining and taking us closer and closer and closer to how we can help people heal in a more kind of expedient way, but really left the body out of the equation. Emotion Mm. in the body, trauma in the body, flourishing in the body, connection in the body, and realizing how separated we actually or maybe I'll say this differently, it's amazing looking back how well we were trying to help people without really helping the whole person, without really seeing Mm -hmm. that there was more to the experience of being a person than just their thought life. And then, of course, we get kind of the resurgence of the trauma, the understanding of trauma that came after Vietnam War and understanding how our bodies were screaming out saying, something happened to me. And it wasn't okay. And it feels like it's still happening in my nervous system. And our emergent understanding of PTSD came out of that. And we started to understand Mm -hmm. how body-based therapies were really important. But what I want to suggest with embodiment is that embodiment is one, first our birthright. It is how we are born. It is something that is the most true about us. And two, it is both essential for our healing of pathology, but also for our flourishing. If we are going to go into the body, that is going to be really helpful for us for repairing the places in our story, in our life that have been wounding, but it will take us beyond that. It will take us beyond symptom reduction and neutrality to allow us to experience all of the things that are also in the body besides just suffering and pain and death and hurt and judgment and incarceration and violence. It will also help us experience joy, vitality, pleasure, aliveness, presence, compassion, interconnectedness. And the body is waiting for us to return to itself so that we can be more full. But, and here's the last caveat I'll make before I end my soliloquy here, 
<laughs> but it's so important that we move into the body in a way that's reparative of the damage that all of these systems have done. So if we are trying to oppress or control or perfectionistically move our way into our body, we are going to be taking the old mechanism of disembodiment and trying to allow it to somehow create a home within ourselves, which is not how it works. Embodiment is something we need to pursue differently than we pursue the escape from the body. And it needs to be something that we, we allow to exist over a period of time in a patient kind of gentle returning to ourselves instead of a striving or another thing that we need to achieve. Oh mm. my goodness. Ooh. Yeah. I know I'm going to be listening back through this episode multiple times <laughs> because I'm going to need to. Um, but the way you unpacked the history and so many layers um, that have influenced our, you know, our, our perspective on embodiment in general, but then with psychology more specifically and the voices that have influenced that. Um, but then especially towards the end there where you elevated um, how we need to, you know, return to the body in a way that's healing and gentle. And, you know, I, I hear you and, and I recognize like how much work we have to do individually and collectively right. to make those spaces right. accessible, right? Because yeah. I mean, because we are still navigating so many layers of trauma uh -huh. in addition to the layer upon layer upon layer of trauma like we've experienced throughout our lives, some more yes. than others. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. can I jump in yeah. and add another yes, piece Yes, please, please. The, the thing is that our, the way we've constructed our society and our healing methods are very disembodied. The way we understand ourselves is disembodied, but the body has not abandoned us as humanity. The body has not abandoned us individually. In fact, when we look at what's going on neurologically in terms of what's creating most of the things that bring people into psychotherapy, there are bottom up processes that are, that are really being displayed. There are things that are showing up first in affect or first in the body and then later in the thoughts and in the mind and the way people talk about them or in their mm -hmm. kind of external behavior. And the bottom-up process is really just honoring what's what's already happening, what the body intuitively is trying to do in terms of speaking up, taking care of us, connecting to other people. The body is not something we need to fix. It's our understanding of what it means to be human that needs to be adjusted. And it's the social structures that keep us cut off from that understanding or the, the wisdom of our body that keep us cut off from the way that our body is working for us that need to change, not the body. And so it, it oh really is this kind of like flip on on why people come into psychotherapy instead of saying like that is your pathology that you're tight all the time, or that is your pathology that you are hurting your body. What if we were able to say it makes so much sense because one, you've been told that your body is a thing that gets in the way. So no wonder you're hurting your body. Wow. Mm. You're just being a really good student of culture. And of course mm -hmm. you're doing that to belong. And of course you're doing that because no one else taught you how to listen to your body before you need it like before all of these things start to show up. And then the other part of it is, wow, look at how good our bodies are that are calling us home to healing. I mean, this is really mm. what I'm trying to get at in the book is so many of the reasons that we 
hate our bodies culturally are actually things that our bodies are doing to try to help us be whole. They're saying, stop living that way. It's not good for you. Or Mm. here's some unfinished business. And I'm going to keep reminding you of it every time you go to the scene of where the trauma happened to tell you there's more work for you to be done so that you can be free. But we look at these things and we see them as reasons that our bodies are bad or reasons that we are bad. And I want to flip that script and say, no, these are these, these are data points about how good our body is. And if only as psychotherapists, only people who are working in the mental health field, if only those of us with lived experience with mental health issues could see all of these things are just our way of signaling, this is where it hurts. Can you come back to me here so that I don't have to deal with this alone and so that we can be free? Gosh, that's so good. And I'm, I'm even, as you're talking about all of that, right, I'm thinking about, because obviously our show exists kind of in this overlap of, of faith and mental health. And so right. thinking about kind of the dominant or the like traditionally dominant, right, like theological uh, influences, right? Like, you know, again, similar to psychology, right? Like Western European white dudes in power, right? Like those are, that's kind of where uh, a lot of the kind of like traditional, what you might read in a seminary or whatever. And I haven't been to seminary, but right, like some of those, and and we get a similar kind of understanding of like, okay, everything kind of bodily and, and like earthly is bad and to be ascended from, right? Like if you can get your mind right and believe on a cognitive level hard enough, then the experiential side of things is something that you can kind of overcome, right? Like you can think your way out of that somehow as if that's to be left behind, as opposed to what you're talking about, right? And I think we see some more of this, hopefully at least these days of, hey, there's a holistic thing happening where our bodies are also created in the image of a God who mm-hmm. put things there to point us, like you're talking mm-hmm. about, right? That put things there to point us towards places that need healing or like exactly. our natural needs, right? Like when you're tired, you could sleep instead of like, oh, this sucks. I need to push through this or what, right? Like, but again, that takes kind of a flipping of like the entire, you know, I think a lot of the the theological way we talk about things, which is primarily, right? Like the the number of pastors I've ever heard use, like reference CBT in a sermon is way more than I've ever heard reference any other kind of experiential thing because it kind of already fits with the theological Mm -hmm. understanding of, well, just, you know, if we can get you to think about it right, then everything else follows. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're so right. Like, I I love to think about this. I don't have like a a really neatly packaged thought around it, but I think about how often we in faith spaces, although experience lots of shame about our, around our bodies or really not even knowing how to integrate our bodies into faith, we understand how our body expression with others can be a gift or an outworking of the spirit. So if I go and I touch somebody and I put my hand on their shoulder and I offer them some comfort, we could reasonably assume that that would make sense, that that was God moving through us, that that was anything that moves us to care for our communities, anything that moves us to take care of one another when we're hurting. This is this is the spirit active in us. And yet it's really hard for us to understand the flip around that, which is it is also God in us. It is also the spirit in us when we are moved to care for ourselves because we have a bodily knowing. And then we honor that bodily knowing, the ability to say, whoa, I'm thirsty and I'm going to, I'm going to give myself something to drink, or I'm hungry and I'm going to feed myself, or I am tired exactly like you said, and I'm going to rest. 
it seems like it's a jump for us to think of that also as the way that the spirit is moving in the world. And yet when our bodies are for other people, we can understand that a little bit easier. So I want to kind of add to that logic or kind of make the leap, the logical leap to say, anything we do with our bodies to bring care into the world, I think, in my opinion, is actually the way that God is moving in the world, including when we are caring for ourselves with our bodies Mm. and through our bodies. I don't see it as distinct from the work of the spirit. When I love on someone else or when I place my hands on my belly at the end of the day and say, wow, thank you for telling me that that didn't feel right in that meeting, or thank you for telling me that I'm upset. I really want to know so that, that I can be with that feeling. Thank you, body. Yeah. Man. No, that's so, so, so good. And those reminders and invitations for us to continue to return back to the, that way of connecting with our body in the way that you just modeled, I think is beautiful. So I hope our listeners really hear that and not just as like a cognitive, that's a great idea, but (laughs) as what you just said is like an invitation for them to actually practice that as well in their own lives. So that's good. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd love for our listeners to just learn a little bit about that staircase of stress response that you offer. Um, you know, just thinking through some, oh gosh, see, I'm talking about thinking in our <laughs> conversations. <laughs> it is I'm the kidding. way we orient ourselves. And I mean, it's oh. a, definitely a part of our experience that we know well. It this is. is not, we don't yes. need to fault ourselves for that. <laughs> yes. No, I appreciate that. Thank you for that, Grace. Um, and I, you know, I can see it as being helpful for our listeners to understand these different steps along the yeah. staircase. Um, again, not just from a cognitive place, but but as they hear you talk about it from more of an embodied space. Sure. Um, do you mind unpacking those different steps a bit and like, how we kind of move through those uh, yeah. those steps. Oh, that would be such a joy for me. So I will first um, preface this by saying, this is a really accessible, uh, ex- um, a version of the work of Dr. Stephen Porges that has been made more accessible. So I'm changing some of the language to make it feel like it can really sit in our everyday language. But if you're interested in reading more about this, check out Dr. Stephen Porges' work or kind of the technical name for what I'm describing, which is the phylogenic hierarchy of stress response. And that's a fancy way of saying we have a hierarchy, we have stages that we go through that our body employs to keep us safe in situations of unsafety. And in that staircase response, there are tiers based on what's happening around us, what we need, what our body assesses will keep us safe, what the level of threat is. But we are wired to be what you might kind of consider at the top of the staircase, to be in this place that is the most evolved of rest and connection and play and creativity and calm and ease. And it's the place where we can think our best thoughts and be our best self. And we might call this this like core state, or we might call this the place of safety and rest and play. 
But as things enter our world or our environment that are threatening for us, either things that are remembered or happening right in front of us, our body is wired to go through a a few different levels of response to keep us safe. And the first one is social engagement. So we take one step down the staircase of safety and we respond. We get activation in our throat and this happens unconsciously. It's just the way our nervous system is programmed. And through that activation in our throat, what our body is wired to do is speak up and say, hey, that doesn't feel good. Or can you help me? Or can somebody see the suffering that I'm in? And one of the things that you might be able to recognize happens with this is we get a change in the level of tension, temperature, or pressure in our throat. So if you've ever heard your voice crack when you're talking about something really important, it's because there's a shift that's happening neurologically for you, neurophysiologically for you, where your body is saying, I'm going to start employing a different mechanism of action because there's a lot that's intense that's happening for me right now. So we notice activation in the throat. And if for some reason asking for help, setting a boundary, it it doesn't work or it gets us in more trouble, then our body is wired to say, I'm not going to keep doing something that's going to actually increase my risk. So let's ante up or take a step down the staircase Mm -hmm. and let's fight or flight. Let's activate the nervous system on a more physiological level. Let's get that heart pumping. Let's get the, you know, the pupils dilated. Let's get your breathing to change and digestion needs to stop because you probably need to either protect yourself or get out of here. But again, our, our nervous system wants us to survive. And if something in our response actually is going to jeopardize our safety more, then what's going to happen is we're going to start shutting down and we're going to shut down as a means of protecting ourselves so that we don't actually create more harm for ourselves. And what's so important to, to name about all of this is that it's unconscious. It is not us saying, um, mm-hmm you know, I, I should probably fight back because, you know, this is a situation that, you know, really warrants some, you know, some aggression. Our body is wired to make certain choices that actually happen on a more, what we might say a gut level than our cognition is even aware of. They're happening in places that precede cognition or the thoughtfulness about this and reacting in split seconds. And then what happens is if we, If we have found that something in the past hasn't worked, like reaching out and asking for help or getting activated and fighting or flighting, then our body's probably not going to try to do that as much. So it starts to really wind down those elements of self-protection and moves us in a way that you can think about jumping down the staircase instead of stepping down step at a step, step at a time. We can move from rest and play all the way to shut down without really having the stages in between. Mm -hmm. And what's really important to recognize that this helps make sense of why some chronic depression is untreatable for people is that there has been not just a chemical imbalance, as we like to think colloquially, as a like very non-pathologizing way of understanding how depression happens for a lot of people, but it kind of not really taking into account why the chemical imbalance happened in the first place, which the theory leads us to suggest is because we were so overwhelmed for so long that we had no other choice but to shut down and our body's kind of stuck there. It's stuck in the shutdown state. And as a result of the nervous system not being activated in the way that it needs to, our neurochemistry changes. So what we can think about doing is starting to wind our way back up the staircase to safety. So 
unfortunately, and this is often what's scary for people when they're doing trauma work, they come out of the shutdown and instead of feeling better, they actually feel way more intense. Mm-hmm. They have anxiety. Mm-hmm. They feel mm-hmm. terrified. The trauma yeah. is back in the body. All of the reasons why they shut down are just there waiting for them. All of the responses that were previously overwhelming are there. So it's normal for people to flip-flop, kind of shut down, anxious, shut down, anxious, shut down, anxious. And it's when we process why we were in this activated state in the first place that our body can complete the survival response and move us back into social engagement where we can talk about it, ask for help, be more at ease, and ultimately where we can move back up to safety. Oh my gosh, that's so helpful. The way that you unpacked that. Oh, I'm going to describe so that. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. And I do – and that piece about the depression, like you also nod in the book that that's really related as well to burnout, that it's not too far off from no. the same experience with burnout. So yeah, I just wanted to add a nod to that oh, thank piece. thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You did your homework, yeah. Holly. Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's good, y'all. It's good. <laughs> thank so. you. Sure. Yeah. I love that. And I think it does add some understanding for ourselves and for other people, right? So I've used the the polyvagal ladder, right? Which is uh-huh. what you've turned into a staircase and stuff, right? With with clients who like in, in uh, you know, maybe every time there's conflict, they go into total shutdown mode and then it's responded to in like a, okay, how come you won't talk to me, right? There's like this shame, right? right. And so if we can understand it yeah. from kind of a physiological level here, we can we can switch it from like a they won't or I won't make that choice. Like I won't do those things to a like, I can't until I experience more uh-huh. safety, right? We can work mm-hmm. with that in a different way other than, well, if I shame myself hard enough, I can do something different, right? Because yes. that that usually doesn't doesn't tend to help. Right. So. Especially if the shame, if the shame response is implicated in the shutdown, then all we're doing is we're shutting ourselves down more. And then what do we, what, right. like then we get stuck in this mm-hmm. loop. I'm like, I, I'm shut down oh, there's something wrong with me. I'm bad. I'm going to try, like, I'm going to try to muscle through this, but use shame. And guess what? We end up further in this pit of, of shutdown. It's, it can get yeah. really nasty and all tangled mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I think it's, it's helpful to know that to come out of that, right. The, the reason, you know, when you say, okay, sometimes when that happens, people feel much worse, right. Yeah. We have to, to walk up a staircase or climb a ladder or whatever, right. Like you, you have to walk up like you have to go through that middle bit mm-hmm. of the the stress response, right? The fight or flight type mm-hmm. stuff. You can't, yeah. you know, jump all the way up a huge staircase all the way back up to the, you know, now I feel great. So um, right, exactly. even though that maybe yeah. feels worse in the moment that that actually get is progress. Pack. And that's right. Yeah. Well, we want to get a um, jetpack yeah. <laughs> and kind of like fly all the yes. way up to rest without having to process through how we got there in the first place. Yeah. You said it so beautifully, Robert. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have, I mean, we could stay here all day and talk about this book and there's tons more questions and stuff. And um, maybe we'll have you back on or something because we could talk about all sorts of stuff. But we we do want to ask, you know, we love asking people when they come on with books they've written or research they've done or work that they do or anything like that, right? What's what's your hope for this book as it launches into Mm. the world? I hope that people are more connected to their bodily self. I hope that the book does... Yeah, really does what the I mean, there's no better way to say this. I'm kind of lost for an original way. But I hope the the book does what I wrote it to do. I hope that people drop into their bodies instead of getting new ideas about their body or instead of like just talking about it, which I think is really important and helps change culture. I hope people while they're reading it 
feel their feet on the ground. I hope people experience the the joy that comes with eating their favorite meal. I hope that people have the courage to go to therapy because they're starting to pay attention to their bodily cues and seeing that there's some unfinished business for them. So I hope that it winds its way into the fibers of people's being and allows them to start start a journey, start connection with themselves in a new way or take that even further. Mm, that's so, so good. Well, listener, you can connect with Dr. Hillary McBride at hillarylmcbride.com or on Instagram at Hillary, is it Liana? Liana, yeah. <laughs> Liana, thank you, McBride, um, or Twitter at Hillary L. McBride. We'll have links to all of those in our show notes, um, and you can order The Wisdom of Your Body, Finding Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living wherever you buy your books. Um, you can connect with Robert at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vohr, or you can connect with me at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. Oh man, Hillary, I I am so so grateful for your again for your willingness to yeah. join us today. Yeah. And like I said, I'm going to go back to this one a handful of times before we do close. I I do want to mention one last thing before we um uh, before we close that you do also have this gorgeous letter to your body um, that is written in the back of the book that I know you and I had touched base on back in mm -hmm. July, I think. And so I want to, again, not only elevate this book for our listeners to go pick up because again, it is so good for you and for your loved ones, but this letter in the back, I mean, it's stunning. I wish we had time to like read it, but I'm going to tell our listeners to go buy it and for them to follow the prompts that are written, um, alongside with this letter. So I just thank didn't you. want to lose sight of that. Yes. Thank you it so is much. Just gorgeous. Wow. Thank you, Holly. Um, yeah. Any any closing thoughts um, for our listeners today, Hillary? Just so so grateful to be with you today and for all of you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope the book finds its way into your hands. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHPodcast at gmail.com.